Dotnet Rocks episode 891 with guest Corey Fowler. Recorded live Thursday, July 11th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklin's.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to Donnie Rocks. Carl and Richard, and we're here again. And, uh, man, it's almost fireworks time here at Plop Studios, and the elevator's broken. Fireworks time? Yeah, so Sailfest every year in New right. London, Connecticut. And there's a huge fireworks celebration, and our building looks out over the river. Yeah. So we have a prime, prime real estate for watching the fireworks. So every year, this is our 13th annual fireworks party we're having this Saturday. We take out the window inserts in the studio, and there's seven uh, eight-foot windows. Over. You've had that space for 13 years? Yeah. Wow, dude. Yep. That's something. That's something. <laughs> so uh, let's just get started with Better No Framework, I guess. Awesome. What do you got? Well, what I got is something that well, Azure people probably know is there, but I didn't, certainly. And as I get more and more into Azure, I love finding these little gems. If you go to tinyurl.com slash Azure Rest, A-Z-U-R-E-R-E-S-T, you will find the Windows Azure Website's Management REST API Reference. Ooh. This documentation describes how to perform common tasks in Windows Azure Websites by using the Windows Azure Website's Management REST API. And that allows you to do uh, to create, delete, and configure websites, to query the state of websites, to query metrics such as resource usage, quotas, and limits, Retrieve metadata like publishing profiles and configure the scale of websites. Nice. How would you like to have a phone app where you push a button and scale up your website? I think that's pretty cool. I think, I can, but I also like the whole idea of this is for standing up like a testing infrastructure. You know, oh, absolutely. Fire everything up, launch all the versions. Like You can automate everything here. Absolutely. And I think that's what we're going to probably get into a little bit with Corey here. Uh, but I just wanted to let you know about that little gem that I found today. Awesome. Yeah. Know it, learn it, love it. Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 882, and that is the one we did with Mr. Guthrie at NDC, where we talked about a bunch of these new Azure features, including websites. And Dan Moyer uh, gave his comment. He said, great show. Love learning more about the new features in Azure. There was one section of the program where I was surprised to hear Scott Guthrie advocate the use of the stopwatch to instrument a class. And he actually references time. At around 43 minutes, Scott said to paraphrase, every time you make a database call, make an external service call, construct a stopwatch class, call your API, then call stopwatch stop and stopwatch elapse to get the time difference and log the time difference to system diagnostic to know how long it took. I'm surprised Scott didn't suggest using event tracing for Windows hmm. via the new event source class in .NET 4.5 and tooling such as semantic logging application block as discussed by Kathleen Dollard in show 877. Right. It seems to me that ETW logging via event source incurs less overhead to an application's performance than stopwatch and more importantly allows you to capture other OS events such as memory and CPU utilization along with your specific application ETW events to gain a more holistic view of the system. I would also add also ties in with operation center and all of these other tools that us ops folks need to understand what's going on doing your own logging now i have to figure out how to capture that and synchronize that use etw and all the tools i already have works with that yeah and dan i'm gonna skip a chunk here because you wrote a long comment uh, the closing piece is uh, with the vast amount of information one can collect via etw about their application in context of the running system and with etw's low overhead i feel that somewhere a kitten dies every time a developer uses stopwatch instead of event source to instrument their application yeah i think scott was making a point about instrumentation not that particular tool as ad being an advocate for it or whatever but uh 
just talking about instrumentation. Yeah, there was really that that the thinking around I want every layer of my app to report a number so that we know where the time is going. Right, right. And that is certainly is best served in ETW. So Dan, totally on board with you. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, you can write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com. Or on any of our mobile apps for Windows 8, WinPhone 7 and 8, iOS and Android. You can get them at their respective app stores. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you a mobile app? Go to diatomenterprises.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, releasing around 30 new courses every month now and offering a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. A wide range of topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack, including many courses on Windows Azure. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let us welcome back to .NET Rocks, Corey Fowler. Corey is a Windows Azure technical evangelist at Microsoft with a focus toward open source web technologies. He has an extensive background in web development from the startup scene to the financial services sector. Corey is proud to be both Canadian and a ginger. That means redhead for you non-Irish people. You can find Corey online under the handle SyntaxC4 or read his blog at blog.syntaxc4.net. Welcome back, Corey. Hey, thanks for having me back. Really appreciate it. Ginger, redhead, is that what you mean? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people get teased about it, but I wear it with pride. You know, it shows the uh, the fiery disposition that you have, the, the passion burning inside you comes out your hair. Exactly. That's a good way to think of it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Corey, you did an amazing talk at Build. Uh, about continuous delivery with Azure, which is one of the reasons that I, I pinged you when we saw each other there, because I ended up being at build for whatever reason and said, we got to talk about this because it's, I think it's an area that people just don't quite grapple with around Azure. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, like there's, there's a great support there for it. So I think, you know, what, once people start deploying out to websites more, they're going to start to bring the, pra- the uh, processes that they, you know, they've been doing for a long time on whatever they're deploying to now. Um, and, and you know, that's going to be a big part of it. So, I mean, it's great uh, that the support's there for it. And, you know, we'll kind of expand on it, I guess, a little bit later on in the show. But, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a really fun talk to give. Um, we also talked a little, bit, a little bit of the automation piece as well, uh, which feeds into the the tip or the better known framework today, which is the Windows Azure REST API. Yeah. How long has that been out there? Um, so this actually just went live with the uh, GA announcement of websites. So it would have been, um, you know, first day of build, this was out there. Um, but it's, it's great to see all that documentation out because I know people have been saying forever, where are the docs, where are the docs, and everyone on the on Stack Overflow and all the other forms out there just like, Oh, just go look at the uh, cross-platform command line tools, and yeah. you know you'll find all the service calls from there. Right. Um, but it's nice to to finally have a nice reference. So that really sort of makes it gives you no excuse now. You know, if you don't have the right tools, you just freaking build one. Yeah. Um, I mean, like the uh, the cross-platform tools and the the PowerShell tools for Windows Azure um, do a great job of covering a good portion of the APIs and. Uh, the teams are working really hard to make sure that they cover the rest of them. Um, but I've actually gone out and I, I stand up environments using the, the cross-platform tools um, that use this API and basically, you know, staging, QA, uh, production environments all kind of spun up directly using the tooling uh, or sorry, the, the scripting uh, tools that are available. So it, it's really nice to see. So, for those who have not, I guess we have to define what continuous delivery is really about. What do you mean when you say continuous delivery? So um, you just had an episode not too long ago that went into uh, the difference between continuous integration and continuous delivery. And mm-hmm. I, I basically see continuous delivery as the next step of continuous integration. Um, so you have lots of people on a team. Uh, everyone's building towards a final product, but everyone has their own little piece to build. And in order to ensure the quality of the application and things are still working, you basically want to integrate that on a regular basis. And that 
means you know some sort of centralized version of the source. Uh, so source control is always a good thing to have in there. Um, and then basically developers are just continuously pushing um, the code that they're writing out to that that repository. Um, and then a process comes in, picks up the build, uh, starts running your unit tests against it, and so on. And that covers continuous integration. Um, continuous deployment or continuous delivery uh, is the next step and actually going and pushing that out to an environment somewhere uh, where you can get some hands-on human interaction with uh, with the application or if you're going to run uh, automated UI testing, uh, you can go out and do that as well. Um, so that's that's kind of where I see continuous deployment. So getting automation, not just in the build, but in also all the testing, but how delivered are we talking? You I presume we're not going directly to production. Like, isn't there a stop here where ops has to say, does this go out into the wild or not? Yeah, and, and that brings up a good point. So in my talk at Build, um, I kind of talked to a couple of different scenarios. Um, one was using TFS Online and how you could go out and um, and, and you can actually build a, a nice process from there um, by having different build profiles and then basically uh, those build profiles you can actually uh, set permissions on. Mm -hmm. Um, So the developers would have access to like the dev environment uh, and then moving that step forward basically you'd have um, like a QA lead um, merge in whatever the development branch they wanted or uh, whatever version of the development branch they want to push into QA. Um, and then a build engineer can go and take from the QA environment, push out to staging uh, or push out to production, whatever the process may be. So there is a couple um, of stops there. I mean, QA, the, the, the developers assemble a build. The QA guys now get to fire off their testing or not. Uh, but they ultimately are the gatekeepers to push it over to ops who then can can put it actually into production. Yeah, um, well, I mean, running your tests and whatnot, uh, should be, and I say this as a just kind of general term towards the whole continuous integration piece, should be when you check in your code. So right. any kind of automated unit test that you have are there. Um, and then when it gets to becoming a little bit more of a manual test, that's when you'd go and take the code from the development branch and pull it into uh, an environment for QA testing. Um, but we actually, like, I, I showed off how you could do that uh, of making a flow into different branches of your of your source code, um, and then link those branches to a particular website in Windows Azure website. And that's the interesting part, of course, is it's it's all just going to Azure. They're just essentially different domains in Azure that you're deploying to. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, the other the other demo that I showed off was uh, how to use the the same process with GitHub. Um, so I actually ended up setting up three different organizations in GitHub, uh, one paid account and then two free organizations. Uh, mm-hmm. The paid account so you can get access to private repositories. Uh, and then the other two, basically, you're just forking your code across from there. So basically what you end up with is a very similar thing where you have a production repository that reflects into a QA repository that goes into a dev repository and they're all forked, so you have the nice ability to go and submit pull requests against each of each of the ones. So instead of um, going in and doing a merge in TFS, uh, you're using the the flexibility of GitHub and doing a pull request uh, into the different repositories upstream. Interesting, but is all that going through that you call the TFS online? I've always known as TFS as a service. Yep. Um, well, so the first demo was all about TFS as a service. Um, and then the second demo was all through GitHub. Right. Yep. But I thought the two were supposed to work together. Um, so TFS as a service has support for Git, um, which is, which is different, right? Cause Git is the, the source code, uh, repository system. Right. Um, and GitHub is a, and is abstraction on top of that, that gives you additional functionality that calls directly into the Git commands that it needs. Uh, in order to kind of do the actions that that you wanted to, um, so that pull request is actually doing uh, a gated merge activity, um, where you know you have to actually go and physically accept the pull request, and then it goes and does the merge under the covers. Um, 
So, I mean, it's two kind of different things, um, but TFS does have support for Git itself um, as, as a, a source code repository target, if you will. Right. So the other piece of this that uh, we talked about with Scott was this whole, you, if you've got an MSDN subscription, you get a credit towards Azure. So can I do all of these Azure work using that credit or is it just for tests? Um, so I think the, the credit that you're referring to is the dev test credit. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm not the, I'm not an expert at, at reading all of the terms and services, but, right. um, my understanding of it is that as long as you're using your MSDN subscription, um, that's considered uh, kind of a dev test subscription. So there's uh, there's the credit there. There's also discounted pricing for uh, for dev test as well. Um, but I would actually I, I, I we'll get a, a link in the show that would, we'll go to a document like a document online that describes it better. Okay. But and and I think the, the distinction here being that if you're doing that, your production site, if it's going to run on Azure, can't be under the MSDN account. But you're right. Let's get the documentation out because you know once again, licensing is scary. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's always <laughs> tough to talk about licensing. <laughs> yeah, no. I think it's an important point because, I, of course, the other side of this that I find really interesting is. Uh, I have worked on applications where the test suite took hours to run. And so the idea that I could launch it in Azure across many more machines than what I've got to shorten up that time, even though the actual app's going to live in my on-premise data center, you know, that to me makes a lot of sense. And then we avoid that whole issue. Yeah. You want it all in Azure, don't you, Corey? Um, I mean, I, I love Azure. I, no saying it. I was an MVP in Canada for two years. Right. Um, working on Azure and I, I moved down here to Redmond and uh, I've been working with Azure ever since. And it's just a, it's a really exciting product to be working on. So I definitely support anyone that wants to move things over because uh, it's been, it's been a blast working with it. You know what I love about Azure? I'd like a new hard drive. How much do you want? 500 gigs ought to do. Okay, here you go. <laughs> I love, I just love that. You know, yeah, that's. Uh, I, I don't um, have to call the guys at the data center to get them to reboot my machine. Oh, it's just so nice. Well, but it, one of the other things too is the the whole automation aspect, right? Um, how how many places in in your own data center can you just go and automatically on demand provision resources? Yeah, you know, it's it's the same thing. But I mean, I wanted I want a couple of web servers. Can I get them up and running? And you know, you can go out and do that. Yep. Yeah, and that's still hard to do on-prem. Like, there's no equivalent to this Azure Websites Management REST API interface for Hyper-V under Windows 2012. Well, I guess there is sort of. You could do it through PowerShell. Yeah, there's the PowerShell API. Um, there's also the uh, the release of the Windows Azure uh, um, the Windows Azure Pack, uh, which was released at TechEd this year. And basically, that brings... Um, some of the power of, of what you can find in Windows Azure um, down into your own data center running under Server 2012. Did Interesting. You hear about that? So, I mean, I, and I've got the sense that even if you never go to the public cloud, an awful lot of what Microsoft's learning the public cloud is showing up in our on-premise infrastructure anyway. Like that, that to me is really curious, sort of the reality that we're all, all of Windows is being changed because of what's been happening in the cloud. But I, and I don't want to make this all IT oriented here because certainly I put that hat on because I think a lot of folks have always looked at Azure as an IT product and now it seems to be more and more a dev product. Yeah. I had the opposite. Um, I, I found a lot of people just thought it was very developer centric and, uh, and the IT pros weren't too sure about what was going on. So that's, that's really interesting to find out because I mean, uh, Windows Azure's always had a REST API sitting below it. So you could always be, you know, the developer grabbing resources whenever you need to. You can right. write code directly against those resources and, and consume them. So that's where the DevOps kind of area where you're a developer that's managing your own operations. Um, it always kind of felt like that in, uh, in some kind of terms early on. Um, and you're starting to see a lot more people think of it in the IT perspective of, of what you thought. So it's actually really interesting that you, 
that you said that. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a it's a funny dynamic as to you know which piece is owned by whom and how you do how you do those things. I mean, and I agree with you that Microsoft's original. You know, we think I don't think a lot of people talk about web roles and app roles anymore. That doesn't seem to be the focus at all. It's a, I think everyone's grabbed onto websites and and the specific service areas like Service Bus and and mobile services as as the things that they're going to care about. Um, well, I don't know. It, it, I, have, I have mixed feelings on that because, I mean, websites is great and, and, you know, you get up and started really easily. Um, but there's still lots of power be- behind the web and worker role. Um, and I, you know, I've talked to a number of different people where they're just like, yeah, we, um, we decided to, to go with websites and other people were like, well, we needed the flexibility to be able to, to provision, um, just a whole bunch of machines. So we decided to just go with, with cloud services. So, I mean, there's still the mix. Um, definitely a lot of people very interested in Windows Azure websites, but I wouldn't discount uh, cloud services at this point either. I mean, there's still definitely a, a big use for them, and there are quite a few people going out and building applications on them. Yeah, and I, I think we talked about this with Scott as well, that, that um, there is a limitation to how far you can scale websites, and web roles will scale much further. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, cause I mean, if you go to a standard, which is, uh, used to be known as reserved in the preview, um, you can spin up to 10, uh, instances of a particular website. Um, but I think the default in cloud services is something along the lines of, uh, you can spin up to 25, uh, different instances of a web rule. So there's right there. You can see the difference between, you know, where am I targeting my application? Uh, is it, is it easily to fit within 10 instances of a site, you know, running IIS, or is it something that, you know, lots of people are going to hit it and I need about 20 instances and, and I have to build out towards cloud services. So, I mean, there's also the path where you can go and you can get started with websites because it's really easy to get started with websites with the free tier and you can continue to build out your application. And if you do hit that hard point at um, the 10 instances, you know, there's nothing saying the tooling there is really simple. You go in, you add that cloud service role. You might have to rethink some of the, the ways that you've done things if you're relying on um, the physical machine because uh, you want to build stateless applications when you're going towards cloud services. Sure. Um, but you can use that same web project and basically add the cloud package onto it and then still deploy it to cloud services. So, I mean, websites really easy to get going. You know, you grow, grow, grow. You could potentially grow beyond the capacity of websites. Um, and then you can just flip over to cloud services. Uh, and the tooling support in Visual Studio is getting really great to be able to do that. Yeah, that because I always thought there was a big, you know, the whole thing I liked about websites was the stuff that I already had running in IIS on-prem. I could move it up to websites without a whole lot of fuss. But you're yeah. telling me the path from an Azure website to an Azure web role is getting easier? I mean, like... Uh, it's definitely, you know, everything's kind of based off the web project that you have. So, right. so if you go and you deploy something out to um, websites, uh, you have the the nice con- you have the nice uh, source control integration. So really easy deployment methodology. But that project sitting in Visual Studio today, you can go and you can right click on a web project and say add cloud service and it goes in as long as you have the Azure SDK and tools installed it'll actually build out the cloud service that's needed hook that web application into a web role and then you can basically package up and deploy from there are you talking about um, command line apps or PowerShell applets I'm, I'm talking about straight from Visual Studio uh, like an ASP.NET web project okay so in your project right click um, and then you can add cloud, uh, cloud service reference and right. basically pops that application to cloud services. So speaking of PowerShell, is that, um, is that something that you guys use in continuous delivery? I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but what specifically uh, is, is PowerShell giving you there? Um, so what you can do with PowerShell is um, with the Windows Azure PowerShell commandlets, you can basically go out and spin up your environment. So um, in my talk at Build, I went and I created uh, on the fly, basically went out and double-clicked one PowerShell file, and uh, I, I created a dev environment 
that went out to GitHub and pulled in, you know, that developer um, repository. Right. Then I spun up a QA environment and went out to another repository and pulled that down. Then I spun up my staging uh, environment, which went to my, you know, my main production kind of account and pulled down my staging branch from that uh, repo there. Hmm. Uh, and then I had a production environment that basically went out and pulled down the master branch from the same repository. So, you know, multiple environments all set up. My dev environment was in the free tier. My QA environment was also in the free tier. Um, and then my production and staging environments, uh, I used the, the commandlets to automatically switch them over to a standard instance and, and spin them up to two medium instances right off the bat. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. Yeah, where does all these scripts end up living? Like, is there, I feel like we need a tool maybe inside a studio that just helps manage this continuous delivery process. Well, I mean, like that's, that's environment automation. So if you think about a typical enterprise environment, standing up environments like that would probably fall under the role of the IT pro, right? Right. So um, hopefully, you know, the IT pro sitting there, they have all their great PowerShell scripts, as I know they do. Um, hopefully, they're also sitting in some sort of source code uh, repository, so they have nice backed up and versioned um, version like sets of their scripts. So once they start adding things to their environment, you know they could look at their previous ones or get those ones back. Um, but they would be actually the ones responsible for going out and deploying some of these environments. Now, if you're doing it as part of the continuous delivery process, and you're just like um, let's fire up an environment to actually go and run our our application in QA. Um, you do your you know automated UI testing and then spin the environment back down. Um, I mean, you could have those scripts sitting either on your build machine, uh, so they can go out and and set up the environment before it goes and deploys the code out. Um, then the next part of your build would be like the the automated UI tests. And then the final stage of your build would go tear down the environment that you have sitting in websites, and um, that would kind of complete your build process. Yeah, and now we get back to that whole permanent building being a big deal because we can light these things up and then shut them down very quickly and actually pay by the minute for what it costs to do testing fast. Yeah. Uh, any preference for testing tools? Are you living purely in a studio world, or what do you like to use? Um, I mean, I... I play around with a whole bunch of different languages. So I, I kind of have different tests, uh, test environments for everything or different test tools for everything. Um, I've been starting to play around with QUnit for my JavaScript unit tests. Um, and, uh, and I've worked with both NUnit and MS test for, for .NET code. Um, and then one of the last, um, the last demo that I showed off in my talk was using Team City because I've, I've used Team City before um, to kind of, you know, I have a source code repository somewhere. Um, I don't have a build server with it, so let's let's bring some sort of build server into the mix. I spun up a Windows Azure virtual machine uh, and installed Team City on it, and then basically just connected back to that source code repository that I had, um, and Team City took care of the builds for me. Now, I mean, I have experience with Team City, but I mean, the guys at MS OpenTech have been doing great work with Jenkins, so you could also use that depending on you know what what processes you have in place and uh, what you do internally. But those are the things that I've worked with before. So, I mean, part of this is just picking the tool you want to live with too, because it does, but it does take a suite of tools to get, I mean, it feels to me like getting to a continuous delivery is a pretty high goal and there's a bunch of steps to getting there. And part of it is getting this tool suite together. Um, I mean, uh, it, it could feel that way. Um, the TFS as a service does a great job. Um, so, I mean, you have source control, you have the build agent right there. Um, you just check in and mo like the default uh, build configuration is continuous integration. So it's going to go out and run your unit tests. I mean, if you already have TFS today, um, that's a pretty good suite of tools right there uh, to be able to go out and do continuous integration. And then the delivery part on top of that, I mean, we have integration in Windows Azure websites for, for TFS as a service. So, um, you know, you already have that, that deployment piece 
set up for you. So, I mean, it, it could be cumbersome if you go and you want to, you know, choose every little piece. Um, and, you know, if you, or if you have a preference on every little piece, like you can definitely go out and find tons of tools that would be able to do this. Um, but living in a Microsoft world, I mean, we have the integration that goes all the way through. Um, and like websites has the ability to uh, take deployments from TFS, GitHub, uh, local Git, uh, even Dropbox. Like, I don't know how many enterprises are going to use Dropbox support, but the options there. Right. Yeah, and I think there is still a culture, and I and I don't necessarily advocate this culture, but we certainly when I talk to developers, where it's like if I just want the stuff that Microsoft makes, I don't want to have to hunt down these other libraries. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I've I've interacted with people on both sides. Like, we we love using all the Microsoft tools; everything's great. Um, and, and then there's you know people that want to go and customize every little bit of their development workflow. So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, being able to to take that uh, tool that you have available to you, um, y- you know, what no matter what it is, if there isn't support directly for the source control system in Windows Azure websites, we also support web deploy. Uh, and that's how you're going to go out and set up any of those custom tools. Just make sure that uh, you have web deploy installed on your, your build machine. Uh, and then there's some great articles online. Uh, Syed Hashimi has done a great job of, of keeping MS build and, and uh, web deploy kind of documented so people can figure out how to go and deploy um, applications out using web deploy. And web deploy is just part of the web platform installer. Um, web web deploy is basically part of the MS build process. So uh, you can say MS build, and then you uh, pass in a a property that's called uh, deploy on build, uh, and then that switches things over to the MS deploy route. And then you basically you have to have a publishing profile, a password, um, and a couple other properties set, uh, but then you can just go and, and that process will actually deploy out whatever code you have into Windows Azure website. Hey, Richard. Yes, sir. You know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to deploy a stupid Azure joke in lieu of a funny one. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Awesome. And before I tell you who that is, I need to tell you that Kendo UI by Telerik is everything you need to build HTML5 and JavaScript sites and mobile apps. Kendo UI comes with server-side wrappers for ASP.NET MVC. You'll be able to produce awesome HTML5 apps powered by Kendo UI without being forced to write JavaScript. Simply program on the server, and the Kendo UI wrappers will handle the HTML and JavaScript. You'll have fun, and your boss will be amazed. Visit, and if you're your boss, you're going to have fun and be amazed. (laughs) (laughs) Visit the official Kendo UI website at kendoui.com slash dot net, D-O-T-N-E-T, to find out more about Kendo UI or download the free 30-day trial with full support. And don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks. And our winner today is going to get a copy of Kendo UI as part of their DevCraft Complete. So who's our winner, buddy? Our winner today is Lance Hudson. Congratulations, Lance. Golf clap for you and Round clappers. Got clappers. They got the clappers. I got the clappers. So, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to the .NET Rocks website and click on the big block on the right side that says "Get Free Stuff." Yeah, we're going to ask you a few survey questions, and you're going to be entered into the contest. That's right, Richard. And every show we give away a DevCraft Complete Collection. Every December we give away five thousand dollars worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. We'd like to ask our guests. Corey, if you had five grand to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? Oh, man. Azure uh, minutes are off a, limits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, that's a, that's a whole lot of Azure. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I have lots of different things. Like, I have my RT. I have my Surface Pro. Um, I'm a pretty happy guy technology-wise, but... I got to think after build with Windows 8.1, we've got all that support for 3D printing now. Do you have a 3D printer in your life yet? Actually, a 3D printer would actually be very, very awesome addition to my collection of technology. Maybe you'd like to donate it to your favorite charity. 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what are you talking about? Okay, I buy did. a 3D printer, give it to the school. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that'd be fun. That'd you know, be cool. But, but yeah, you can, yeah, and I've, it, I've been studying 3D printers for a while now, but you know, something like the Replicator 2 by MakerBot, but the other, and the other gizmo you need is a Wacom tablet. Although if you're using a Surface Pro, the Wacom's built in. Yep. Yeah. A lot of kudos for Surface Pro from our friends in the RD community, Richard. Yeah, it's a great machine. I'm, I've actually, you know, hopefully the older daughter doesn't listen to this, but I've got one stashed away for her for her birthday. Shh, shh, shh. She is the artist, right? And so the pressure-sensitive pen, that yeah. whole thing, she already has a Wacom tablet. She's ready for a new laptop. I think it's the perfect machine for her. Yeah. I think I'm going to uh, – remember that um, tablet that I bought on the road trip that I started? I do. Yeah. And bought twice, I recall. And, well, I bought once before, and then I bought another one on the road trip <laughs> because I found the permanent off switch, which <laughs> is it, – it's kind of hard to find, but it turns out that if you plug the USB cable into the HDMI port, that's the permanent off switch. It's off. Uh, Indianapolis. Yeah. So anyway, I'm thinking about selling that one and getting a Surface Pro. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great idea. So if you want to buy it, what is it? It's a uh, Asus Triple E Transformer uh, tablet. It's running Windows 8. It's a little bit big, but and it was like two grand. It was it was kind of beefy. Those are pretty nice machines. Yeah. I've actually seen a couple of those in action. Yeah. They had a lot of horsepower, but when we were on the road trip, Carl was building tablet apps, and that was the tablet du jour. Yep. That's right. It was good. All right, let's jump back into this, Corey, because I've, I've, we've talked almost entirely about web apps. Do you see this sort of, of continuous delivery with more of a, a, a smart client app? And I guess then the part that's running in Azure is pure back end. Um, so explain what you mean by smart client app, like a, an API sitting out in the cloud somewhere and the, the client's connecting to that? Yeah, and then or, I guess it means when we have maybe a WPF client or a mobile client, something that's actually got to be deployed. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, it doesn't necessarily have to be a web application. Uh, web APIs, definitely a uh, very similar process, right? You, you need to test the functionality. So um, the continuous integration pieces is definitely what you have there. Uh, the deployment piece is just as important, right? It doesn't matter if you're you're serving up a web page out to someone or you're serving up data through a web API. Um, the process still still kind of stands. Uh, it needs to be hosted somewhere within IIS. Um, Windows Azure website is a great place to host it. Yep, that's definitely one of the options, without a doubt. And then I guess that the whole thing is how much testing can I use on do on Azure? Or how much manipulation can I do of a smart client, say in a VM? Because that, that REST API that we talked about at the top of the show, that's purely for websites. I, I don't know that we have the same control over generating virtual machines. So um, there's definitely a, a whole list of different REST API points, right? The websites is, is one piece of it. Uh, there mm-hmm. is management API for um, cloud services and virtual machines. So right. you could go spin up you know, VM environments. Uh, like You can do it with the command line tools. Uh, both PowerShell and the cross-platform tools. Um, yeah. And those are all using the exact same REST API um, that's documented out on windows.com. And maybe we didn't we didn't really hit on this earlier, but I would mention you want to use this REST API when you're working cross-platform. If you're working all in the Windows space, you just use PowerShell. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I actually even switched back between the, the two of them because uh, the PowerShell tools have you know, a, a great place where um, you go out and you can create great script files with them, save them as the PS1, uh, and and head back to them on a regular basis. Um, when I'm just going out and doing dev, I use the cross-platform tools because they're really quick to fire off. Um, and there's, you know, it, you can use everything right from the same PowerShell window. Uh, so I, I actually use both of them. If I'm doing scripting, I, I script everything up in PowerShell. Hmm. If I'm just going out and doing dev and interested in finding out, you know, if there's an, an app setting set up, I just go and quickly use the cross-platform tools and find that information. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, it's, I mean, looking at the uh, the PowerShell management commandlets for Azure, it's a huge list, including provisioning drives, Mr. Franklin. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So Yeah, it's, it's impressive. One one of my demos is actually doing get command module Azure, 
and just watch the window scroll. It's it's really nice to see that much support mm. uh, in the PowerShell commandlets. Yeah, whatever you want to do, right up to creating accounts and and uh, changing your subscription configuration, like it, it, almost too many things. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely lots of options, um, and and the fun the fun part is is going out and figuring out how to combine them. So, um, going out and automating an environment, like I said, you know, spinning up a VM in order to do my Team City build, um, I could script that out, but I could also have it as part of um, my my entire script of of my environment setup. So, if I needed to spin up, say, a virtual machine to host, um, say, SQL Server. Uh, or something along those lines as part of my application mm-hmm. as well. I can spin that up. I can choose which image I need for my VM. That starts on its way. Then I go out and provision my website. Um, and I can even inject the app settings in there for, for that particular SQL server instance. Um, as I go through my, my whole deployment script. Wow. Right. Well, and I think the, one of the things we've talked about on the, in the DevOps world here is this idea that everybody works, whether you're a developer or QA or operations, we're all working from a common set of templates for how the system runs. And I, I guess the fact that it's running on Azure and you've got to script it all anyway naturally generates a template. You almost can't avoid it. Yeah, and, and that's the nice thing about automation is that basically you are just, you're taking those things that are very simple, repetitive tasks or could even be a complex task um, that you want to have a computer use because, right, there's a margin of human error. Um, and, yeah. you know, it, there's some of those processes where it's a set in stone thing. Why wouldn't we automate it and just let a computer uh, go out and do its thing? So definitely, you know, a great mix of, of things you can do, templating out different environments or um, just automating a small, simple part of your process that you have to do on a regular basis. Automate all the things, mm, all the stuff. That's my, that's my, that's my motto. <laughs> so in doing continuous delivery in Azure, what's been, what was the biggest hurdle that you had to get around? Mm. I mean, um, the first two examples were TFS online. Everything was pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, like doing .NET applications for quite some time now, uh, being able to, uh, to branch out and merge between branches is fairly straightforward. Um, and with the, the ability to just go and integrate that directly, that was pretty simple. Um, doing the GitHub thing, um, was, was pretty straightforward as well. The, the most interesting part of that was trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I gate my releases? Um, yeah. something that Richard was talking about quite a bit. Um, and that whole concept of, you know, building out multiple organizations was something that I kind of wrapped my head around um, pretty early on because I wanted to be able to use um, pull requests as a, as a way of moving between things because it just seems rather natural uh, way to merge code. Right. Um, so, I mean, those two things were relatively simple. Um, doing the web deploy thing um, from a custom continuous integration piece that was a little bit more complex because you actually have to go. Um, one of the steps within there is, you know, when you go and you create your web application, you can right click and you, there's a publish dialogue because um, you can do web deploy directly from Visual Studio. Mm-hmm. Um, but that dialogue generates a file. So that was probably the, the more complex thing because there was a number of steps that you had to go through to generate the requirements for web deploy to go to websites. Um, right. But even at that, it was, Fairly simple. Like I said, uh, Syed Hashimi did an amazing job covering uh, out the, that entire web deploy process in his blog post. So cool. Um, it made it really, really easy to go. Well, I'll have to include that blog post in the, the show notes for sure. Yeah. Uh, before we run out of time here, I wanted to actually circle back on the rest of this. It's all well and fine to continuously deliver. Uh, we're, are you looking much at the instrumentation side or the feedback side back into the uh, to development of what happens in operations? Um, I mean, there's definitely some points uh, to capture diag- diagnostic information. Um, if, if we're looking specifically at Windows Azure websites, uh, you have all the IIS logging that you have today uh, that's configurable. You can turn it on or off depending on what you need. 
Um, application logging is another piece that you can actually go and configure today. Um, and you can have that either go out to a storage account um, or straight to the local disk within your Windows Azure website. And uh, looking back at the, the web API, or sorry, the, um, the Windows Azure management API, um, one of the things that the tools or the uh, cross-platform tools has implemented from that is the ability to tail uh, your application logging. So uh, if you go out and you're doing debug statements uh, and you go and you, you go to the command line and you say Azure site uh, log tail, um, basically it will just start streaming all of the, the air logs that are coming through um, from, your, from your actual application, which is pretty interesting. Well, you know, and you bring up a very powerful point, which is if you're running QA in Azure, it's all the same logging. So, you know, now you sort of speak to this idea of let's run a load test that may not necessarily be a load test, but certainly exercising all the features of the app as well. And then looking at those errors being fed back. Yeah. I'm just curious as to what that looks like when it's one thing when tests fail, we can capture that. But when you actually raise when you actually have an error that raises in Azure, is there a real good mechanism for getting that back to studio? Straight back to studio. Um, it, well, it depends on where in Windows Azure you're looking. So, right. Yeah. So if, if you're looking for IntelliTrace, IntelliTrace is available within cloud services. So if you're looking for that um, very fine controlled kind of step-by-step walk through the code kind of air diagnostics, um, that's available there. Um, if you're looking for, you know, regular stuff within your IIS air logs, I mean, there's there's lots of great tooling, but it doesn't necessarily map right back to Visual Studio mm. uh, itself. Um, and that log tailing for application logging, um, that's sitting, you know, in a, in a command prompt window um, and just kind of feeding through. So you could actually leave that up and running as you're debugging and watch those air messages stream through. Uh, and kind of figure out, okay, this is this is a piece of the code that I have to go back and and test out. Um, so in, and so IntelliTrace, and I've I've played with IntelliTrace on my local infrastructure, but it actually runs on Azure websites. No, no, no. Um, that's within Windows Azure Cloud Services. Okay, Windows Azure Cloud Services supports IntelliTrace, and my my concern always is that IntelliTrace exerts some substantial load, like. That's got to have some impact on performance when you're running it. Yeah, um, you, you probably definitely want to run that when you're when you're going out and you're doing your QA cycle. Um, but right. you'll most likely want to leave that turned off for when you actually have a production deployment. Yeah, my, my experience has been once you find a repeatable bug, then you can snap IntelliTrace on to help diagnose that, that bug. But it's not something you can just leave on even during a normal QA process just because it has so much overhead. Yeah, I... You know that's that's a very good point. Um, if you find that that bug that you need to find the the exact line of code that it's executing, definitely a good time. Um, and, and that's the magical thing in my experience around IntelliTrace is that it spits back a file that literally walks you backward from the point of the error in your code to how you got there with all of the variables and the execution stack, which is crazy. But it's, you know, you understand why it exerts so much load. It grabs an epic amount of data. I've had gigabyte IntelliTrace files just for running through one Got feature. Be careful with that. You poke your eye out That's with that right. thing. <laughs> well, and it's one of the challenges then, if we're running it up on the Azure side, is I got to haul that gig file back to me. Um, so that file, um, actually, yeah, I can't comment on that because I don't know where the file goes. Um, I think the file goes to storage, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I've I've never done this in Azure. I'm really excited that it is, uh, because you know it's awesome when you're when you're trying to diagnose a really miserable bug, and I've had a few. You know, they the fact that you just it's like here's the truth. Here's exactly how we got here. To you know, down to every single step along right. the way, it's very hard to argue. You know, but. Uh, but when you have transient bugs, when you have stuff that doesn't always reproduce or only occurs in production, you just don't have that option. Yeah. The other tool I've used is um, uh, Preemptive's Analytics. Their their runtime intelligence, because that you can run in production all the time, and it will. You literally plug it into TFS, and it will 
as errors occur in production or QA or anywhere else, it actually creates work items in TFS. Oh, that's pretty neat. And they have clients that run on iOS and Android and Windows Phone and everything else, don't they? Yeah, they've got every kind of client so client support. But it just the, the idea that you could deploy this into Azure websites and have that feedback mechanism is pretty exciting. Pretty cool. All right, Corey. So uh, where can we learn more about Azure and get some goodies? Well, the ultimate resource for Windows Azure, obviously, windowsazure.com. Um, great place to find documentation, um, anything that you need to know about Windows Azure. Also, um, the free trial. So... There's the free trial out there. The the terms have changed on how it works. You actually get a nice spending limit now mm. uh, where, where we give you some dollars to go out and spend instead of here's a block of resources that we're, we're telling you that, that you should probably use. So uh, it's nice to see where you can just go out and, and use the Azure credits that you get um, to how you want to actually build out your application as part of that free trial. Awesome. Thanks very much, Corey Fowler, for talking to us. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate having you back. That's been great talking to you. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.